I was on a state rehab council um, uh, and uh, was the chair of that state rehab council in Virginia uh, for a couple of years. Um, so I got immersed in rehabilitation and then um, I, I got on the uh, task force and rose to, the, to be the chair. Um, and with me today um, are uh, Lee Nahasihi, who is the uh, founder and uh, chief executive officer for the Vision Serve Alliance. Uh, you may have heard her voice last night. Um, and uh, she's uh, doing double duty, at least double duty here today. And um, we also have uh, Kelly Buckland, who's the uh, executive director of the National Council of Independent Living. I believe I've said that correctly. Um, and uh, third, we have Bill Robinson, who is the... Um, president of the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind. Um, and we've brought these people together. Uh, they obviously are partners with us in various aspects of um, uh, aspects of, of rehabilitation and uh, delivery of services to people who are blind or who have low vision. And so you may not know uh, who these folks are or who these organi organizations are, and we wanted to allow them to let you know uh, what they're up to and um, have a little bit of a discussion in the next 50 minutes uh, about what their uh, emphases are in terms of uh, advocacy and, um, and what, how we can move forward together uh, with, uh, with advocacy on issues of rehabilitation. So without further ado, let's get into it and... Um, uh, welcome, Lee. Can you tell us in a couple of minutes who you are and what the mission of Vision Serve Alliance is? Sure. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for inviting me to participate in this group. Um, I wanted to make one quick correction right off the bat. I'm actually not the founder of Vision Serve Alliance. Oh. This organization has been around for over 40 years, and its first paid chief executive was a good friend of mine, Roxanne Mayros. So I'm actually the, the second CEO of the organization and very happy to, to be in that seat. Um, in chronological order, I first became a social worker, but I, I got my degree in social work administration and program evaluation because I'm too soft-hearted to have tried to deliver direct services, quite frankly. And I'm, I'm a bit of a visionary and, and, and love to look at issues from a systemic viewpoint. So I entered into the field of social work um, in alcohol, drug abuse, and mental health originally. But shortly thereafter, I gave birth to our first child, Joe, first of four. Joe was born when I was only 25 weeks pregnant. He weighed one pound, 14 ounces. And just turned 40, so 40 years ago, that that extreme prematurity was quite a big deal and, and um, resulted in him being totally blind, um, being cognitively impaired, and having cerebral palsy. And that, uh, of course, changed our lives and uh, changed my priorities a little bit. Um, just listening to the panel on education, lived all of those experiences with Joe, 
and developed a passion for this field. And early in his life, we received services from a community-based organization, Vision Rehabilitation Organization in Orlando, which originally was called CITE, C-I-T-E, became Lighthouse Central Florida. And frankly, those the staff there, the other parents and families we met, saved our lives, saved saved Joe from a crazy mom, because I was pretty angry in those days, um, turned us around. And many years later, I got the opportunity to work for Lighthouse Central Florida. I was the chief executive there for just about 20 years. And then we were ready to transition. Roxanne retired from Vision Serve Alliance, and I was offered the position and um, just thrilled to be here now working on a national level with all of you. And can you uh, take a a minute to say what the vision of, uh, what the mission of Vision Serve Alliance is? Thank you. So Vision Serve Alliance is a, it's actually a North American association Uh, primarily nonprofit organizations and individuals who are focused on making the world a better place for people who are blind, have low vision, or other visual impairment. Um, We we meet and work together for two reasons. Our mission is to assure that those organizations in this field are strong and healthy, have the resources they need to fulfill their missions, but then also for us to work as a leadership collective to better impact those national issues that really nobody, no one of us could do, do justice to on, on their own. So together, we bring all the best of the field to um, make a difference and impact those. So policy work is now a big focus of Vision Serve Alliance, thanks to all its members, and in particular, Uh, policy and resources for um, older folks. So aging and vision loss is our number one priority. It's not our only uh, issue that we're working on, but it is our our primary issue and will be for the next few years. Great, thanks. And we do have, uh, 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 ACB is a member of the Vision Serve Alliance. And we have people all over the place in the the Alliance, um, Clark and... Uh, Jeff Tom and Mark Reichert, um, just to name a few, uh, are, are very, um, very active in, in, the, in the Vision Serve Alliance. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you, uh, Lee. And can we move to Kelly? Can you introduce yourself and tell us what the mission of the National Council on Independent Living is and does? Sure. Uh, well, hi, everybody. I am Kelly Buckland. I'm a 66-year-old white male whose uh, pronouns are he and him. I'm wearing a black cowboy hat with the Grand Tetons as my background. Um, so I have been, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I got a lot in common with Lee. Um, I also have a degree in social work. That was where my bachelor's degree is in. Uh, my master's is actually in uh, rehabilitation counseling. Um, I went into social work to become, um, well, I, I just, when I, I got injured and broke my neck, I, I thought that, um, helping professions was so cool cause I'd grown up on a farm. So 
I was used to manual labor and I thought, wow, people get paid to help others. That's really neat. So um, that's kind of why I went into social work. I initially started out doing child protection and youth rehabilitation, which um, was the rehabilitation part was fun. The child protection, not so much. Um, I have, uh, I went on to do a number of uh, social work kinds of jobs, but uh, ended up, running a center for independent living in Boise, Idaho for about six years, uh, started it up. Actually, it was a, it was a grant that was received by the Idaho commissioner for the blind. So when I was the first director, we actually got our funds through the commission for the blind. Um, then I went on and ran the state independent living council in Idaho for 15 years. Uh, while I was doing that, I ended up getting elected to be, Vice President of Nickel um, did that for four years, then was elected president, served for four years. And then the executive director was leaving, so I became the director of uh, Nickel and have been in this position now for 12 years. So I've been in independent living for a very long time, just uh, about 30 years, actually. So uh, Nickel will turn 40 next year. And we um, advance independent living and the rights of uh, individuals with disabilities. And like Lee, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I look forward to the discussion. Great. Thank you very much. And let's move to Bill Robinson, who is the president of the um, National Council of State uh, Agencies for the Blind. Thank you. I appreciate that, uh, Doug. And um, unlike my other two panelists, I have no prior experience in social work or VR up until about four and a half years ago. Um, what got me into this field after having served in a business role and getting into a C-suite type position was a accident that uh, where I not only lost, almost lost my life, but I lost uh, complete uh, use of my sight for about three months and then regained uh, sight in my right eye. And that's what I have functional vision with today through the use of uh, hard contact. So the way I got into involved in NCSAB is I jumped right in. They needed a treasurer about four years ago or four and a half years ago. And the mission, and I realized that this organization was really a great organization for both advocacy and education. And so what our mission is uh, to represent um, blindness, both from a, a standpoint of a state VR agency, as well as to educate and advocate for blindness in uh, issues. And so many of you probably have participated, I recognize some um, familiar names on the list, um, that have probably participated in one of the NCSAB conferences. We do two a year, one in the spring and one in the fall, and that is part of our educational mission to help um, bring best practices and new practices and understand issues in the field of blindness that are related to vocational rehabilitation to all our members. And so we bring in outside speakers twice a year. Lee has been on that 
on a panel with us a couple of years for uh, independent living older blind as we continue to explore ways to uh, move that needle. Um, in addition, we do advocacy, our latest advocacy work, um, help some um, blind vendors in the Randolph Shepherd program along working with um, both um, RS- RSVP and NABM in terms of helping them get some COVID relief funds. We've done some advocacy in the, in the area of pre-employment transition services, um, advocacy in terms of systemic issues. Uh, and we employ a couple consultants um, through our organization to help us with that. Dr. Fred Schroeder was a RSA commissioner in the 90s under Bill Clinton. He's one of our main policy consultants. And then Katrina McDonald uh, has a lobbying uh, firm in uh, Washington, D.C., and she does a lot of work with us on the randolph Shepherd area. And by the way, um, NCSAB used to be part of CSABR, which is a larger organization. But in 1974, when randolph Shepherd Act was passed, um, the blind agencies realized that we would be better served, especially because randolph Shepherd had been somewhat neglected by the general agency group to form our own organization. So that was the genesis of NCSAB. Great. Thank you very much, Bill. Um, and your membership is, is primarily, or, or a majority of them are directors of, or commissioners of state agencies for the blind, am I correct? Right. To be, to be a member, you either have to be a director um, or a um, unit chief for blind and low vision services in your state. So uh, we have 50 state members and seven um, members of U.S. territories. Great. Thanks. All right. Let's, let's jump in then. And can each of you say two things that you think is working well for uh, people who are blind or low vision in the rehabilitation uh, world at the moment? Yeah, I'll I'll start out um, just saying that it it probably didn't start out this way, but, um, you know, with WIOA, uh, there was the set aside or the expend, reserve and expend a 15% of your VR grant for pre-employment transition services. And the genesis of that over the last several years, I believe that's working much, much better and seems to be working very well in a number of states. Um, the other thing that I, I believe that is starting to have some traction is actually in terms of upskilling individuals through additional training. Um, and we're trying to do some additional work there, um, as well as looking at customized employment and supported employment for the most severely disabled. And I heard that earlier through, I think Mark um, was talking about the challenges of multi um, disabled individuals. So what we see in the blindness area is 
not only blindness, but a number of other disabilities. And that's why I think that supported employment, uh, customized employment model is, is very important for the future. Great. Thanks. Lee, do you have any? Well, I, I would say in a, in a general sense, those people who are able to obtain vision rehabilitation services benefit greatly from it. So I, I think, again, um, it, it varies from location um, and organization to the next, what those services might look like. But I think it's fair to say that um, vision rehabilitation services work and make a huge positive impact on the people who can receive it. I also think that tremendous innovation in technology and accessibility um, is working. But with both of those examples, we have we still have big issues around access to them. Okay, Kelly. Yeah, well, I agree, I agree on the customized employment stuff, uh, uh, supported employment, and with Lee, the assistive technology. The, the advances in uh, technology right now are amazing and are very beneficial. I think for all uh, people with disabilities. But again, Lee's right again, like. There are still access issues. There are a lot of websites you still can't, still aren't accessible. So <laughs> you're real uphill climb there. So great. Do you want to? <clears throat> excuse me, Kelly. Do you want to move on to what is not working for visually impaired and and blind people in the rehab world at the moment? One or two things. Well, I, I still think we don't have a um, a system that really puts people to work. I mean, we. Um, we still have a high unemployment rate uh, compared to the general public. Uh, and I really think that the system has been built, unfortunately, um, and it was built 50 years ago, and it was built around the ability not to work, right? So the whole premise is that you can't work in order to get benefits. So I think there's – we, we – uh, disincentivize people to go to work versus incent paying them to go to work. We actually should start rewarding people for work. Um, and unfortunately the system is set up in a lot of times to do the exact opposite. That's true. Great. Thanks. Uh, Lee. Well, I'll go back to, to access first. Access. Um, you know, we think at best 5% of, people in America who could benefit from vision rehabilitation services are receiving those. So what's happening to the other 95%? For me, that's the biggest issue. And there's lots of reasons I believe that contribute to that, that lack of access to services. And the same thing for technology. There's some pretty darn amazing technology out there on solutions, but um, unfortunately the majority of people who could benefit from them, cannot access that because they can't afford it or they don't know about it. They don't have a service provider or a company that is near them. So they don't hear about it. What people don't know is a lot about vision rehabilitation. So, um, you know, lots of issues. I also um, am concerned that um, you, you, you can only get vision rehabilitation services if you um, are expressing the desire to return to work 
Um, I guess there's some nuances around that, but the, the loss of the homemaker status and WIOA, I think, has um, been a significant loss to to American adults. Um, so I would like to see that changed. Um, oh, gosh, there's there's a bunch of other things, too, but I don't want to take I could spend the next hour. With- I know. I know we could this this could be a, a whole day seminar. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, thank you for <laughs> for uh, uh, off. That. Yeah, right. Uh, Bill. Yeah, so there, there's a couple things I would agree with um, the last two panelists, too, is, you know, one thing that frustrates me is trying to move the needle on employment. And when I look at that, there's some systematic, um, systemic challenges of moving that needle. And some of it relates for, I can only speak to Michigan, but I think these are probably nationally, can, when I talk to a lot of my colleagues, is there's a lack of qualified job placement professionals to work with our counselors, whether those are job coaches or individuals that do um, work in the placement area. Um, We found that even in customized employment that not many providers know how to work effectively with a blind individual or they have very low expectations Also, there's a lack of qualified um, assistive technology professionals. As Lee said, there's a lot of technology out there, but trying to find um, qualified individuals that can uh, instruct individuals or work with employers in scripting uh, is a challenge. And then I think Kelly touched on this. There's a fear of losing benefits uh, so that you have this challenge um, when you're working with individuals of, of whether they're going to lose benefits and how do you get past that and how do you provide that benefits counseling to show that there is some ability to, in some cases, work and keep certain benefits. In some cases, you, you do work yourself out of that through the Ticket to Work program. Um, and then in the area of pre-ETS, even though that's a strength, uh, pre-employment transition services, I believe all the states are having a challenge with the data divide. In other words, data sharing between us and other state agencies to understand how to do and, and get outreach to those students that need our services. We work around that a lot of in a lot of ways by working with our um, TCBIs here in Michigan, as well as working with our transition coordinators. But it would be a whole lot easier if we had access to some of the education database. And there's a variety of reasons that we don't, given that um, there's a lot of um, issues related to cross-agency um, sharing of personal identify, identifying information and the rules around that. They're not insurmountable, but they're difficult to cross. And then the other thing I would just say, just a quick story, and I, I don't really know I mean, there's pros and cons to this, obviously, and I don't really know how you interweave it into competitive, integrated uh, employment landscape. 
But in our case, I, when I first joined, uh, we had a, um, a young mother who had lost her vision, had uh, young children, was not able to work. And through our training center, we were able to help her through our ILOB program um, to learn independent living skills and to be able to function as a mom in her home. Um, then as the children got a little older, she came back to our training center to learn more about vocational opportunities, and she eventually was introduced to our business enterprise program, a Randolph Shepherd, and then became a Randolph Shepherd and is a Randolph Shepherd successful vendor. So why do I say that? Well, it's it's kind of because when you think about the elimination of homemaker, um, you know, while I get the reason for eliminating that because you really want VR focused on employment, at the same time, independent living skills are key to employment. And we only have a very small grant for ILOB. Our grant for VR is very large. So we have the ability to do more with VR grant in independent living um, skills. So for the homemaker, well, why can you do that with a, a job applicant? Well, in this person's case, she wasn't ready for the application for a job. However, if she never got those independent living skills, she would have never become a successful mom that could then transition into a employment position. And, and therein lies a question, um, does the elimination of homemaker uh, actually become a discriminatory type issue for single moms or single parents? And, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I guess you could have a whole nother discussion <laughs> on that topic alone too. True that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, there's, there's, a, you know, there's a whole. Well, anyway, we'll get to that. Um, uh, what, what is your organization uh, advocating for? What is the, you know, one or two foci of of your um, of your advocacy efforts uh, in terms of your organization? Um, anybody want to jump in and? I will. Sure. So, Thanks. Uh, as I already mentioned, our primary issue is um, creating more opportunity for people 60 years and older living with vision loss. And so we created a coalition. We have about 160 people that are active in that coalition, working on uh, four primary committees, and then there are subcommittees now forming within each of those, because frankly, it's a complicated issue. Um, uh, Many would say, well, all we need is more money. But actually, if all of a sudden the federal government dropped a billion dollars on us, we would not have the resources to deploy that in a meaningful way. Um, I I still want the billion dollars, but... um, (laughs) And, and frankly, I think that's we need pretty close to that to really make a dent here. But in the meanwhile, um, we also need to be working on 
changing policy? I mean, how can the Older Americans Act not even mention vision loss? But that's that's the, a fact. It's barely mentioned in that document at all. And consequently, um, the awareness around aging and vision loss is is minimal. Um, I've I've spoken to very knowledgeable, well-educated people who've spent their career decades in the aging field and and are not aware that there are 12 million, at least 12 million Americans living with significant vision loss. And they're like, how could I not know that? And so we, we need to focus on awareness with aging, allied health, medical. We do need work on on funding as well. Um, and then we need to work on the quality of services and the availability of services. We couldn't, even with a billion dollars, stand up organizations overnight and fill those organizations with qualified personnel to do this job. So we're, we're kind of working on all those things uh, concurrently and, and hoping to move the needle in a significant way over the next few years. It's not the only policy issues we're working on. We, we care about kids all ages, but um, we have focused on aging and vision loss primarily because nobody else is, and and it's by far and away the largest constituency of our community. Largest and growing. And growing. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Kelly, what are you guys working on in the independent living realm? We are actually in the process of uh, determining that. we we have a process by where we survey our membership um, every new Congress. So the new Congress being seated, we, we are now surveying the membership to develop what the priorities are because our priorities come from the membership, not from, not from nickel and DC. So, um, but having said that, um, one of our priorities always is funding for centers for independent living across the country. And um, right now, the other priority, I mean, has been driven by COVID. I mean, uh, it's pretty much COVID, COVID, COVID. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of uh, things around COVID that have really significantly impacted people's ability to live independently in the community. And um, the people that come in to provide services uh, it's significantly impacted their ability to do that. And you've got people coming into people's homes that um, are testing COVID positive. So there's a real concern around uh, spreading COVID by the workforce that's actually there to help support people stay in their own homes. Um, and then we, we've seen a real pipeline of um, the hospitals are so busy that Basically, if you end up in the hospital, uh, their discharge plan um, of default is to send people to rehab facilities, which really are skilled nursing facilities, which really are nursing homes. So uh, there's a huge um, phenomenon going on right now. You'd think that with the number of people dying in nursing homes, they would avoid that at all costs, but it's actually the opposite. They're Admitting the hospitals are admitting people to nursing homes at an unprecedented rate, and um, so that's a priority for us too: is to really work to one keep people in their homes, and then two uh, 
help transition people that are in uh, congregate settings back into the community. And then the other thing that we really uh, are trying to focus on right now is getting people their vaccines. We, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a mess out there. <laughs> you sign up to get your, your vaccine, you know what I'm talking about. So um, we think Centers for Independent Living can play a real critical role in helping guide people through that process. And frankly, there's a big digital divide out there. Uh, a lot of people don't have internet and don't have a device. So uh, we're trying to get more access to the, to those things. Cause really, if you talk to anybody about how to get the vaccine, they'll, they'll give you the uh, website address and that's, mm-hmm. that's it. And we know that's really far from sufficient. So. Good point. Great. Bill. So, um, like Kelly, we have put a position paper together for um, prioritization of the vaccine for vulnerable uh, populations, particularly the blind population. And that position paper is on our website. And it's actually been used by a number of our state members to uh, expedite some of that access for individuals that have um, you know, blindness. And, and then we've also been trying to educate and advocate on accessibility. You know, if like in the upper peninsula of Michigan, if you, if you're, if you're older blind, chances are, you know, you've got a phone, but you, you may not know how to use the phone to get into the website to register for a vaccine and unfortunately, like some counties, that's the only way you can sign up. If you call the number um, that's given, it just directs you back to the website. So we're trying to make sure people have access and they're able to figure out a way to both get there as well as to schedule an appointment. We've also done some work in the area of uh, equity and inclusion and on the equity and inclusion, we recognize that VR historically has underserved certain populations, and we're trying to work um, in tandem nationally to make sure we're not overlooking underserved population. Uh, last year, we actually worked on um, a issue for that actually came, it was driven really Um, from a situation I came across in Michigan where an individual lost their job because they couldn't wear a mask. And so I advocated along with NCSAB and CSABR uh, for some work with OSHA, um, both nationally and here in in Michigan, about masks and the challenges that some of us have in just donning a mask for extended period of times. Um, in certain types of disabilities that would really be an issue for that person to even wear a mask. Um, So that was a key area. Outside of that, I mentioned the Randolph-Shepard advocacy we've done uh, recently. I want to compliment uh, Lee on her work with the older blind population and also for reaching out to NCSAB to be a partner in that discussion, which we have one of our committee chairs participating on that. 
And then finally, uh, we are looking at more flexibilities with our federal funder in the area of some of our uh, rules and regs, as well as pre-employment transition services. Great. Um, hopefully, you got you guys got a chance, and I I, I asked uh, my three panelists to read through um, the um, status of the 2020 status of rehabilitation for blind and low vision uh, people in the United States um, that was approved that uh, the rehab issues task force of ACB wrote and uh, got endorsed by the uh, board of directors uh, last November. And it's up on our website uh, webpage. uh, If you go to acb.org and go to the uh, committees and task forces page and to the uh, rehab task force uh, page. Um, you can find that there. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a few paragraphs. Um, I think it's about 17 pages. But uh, I, um, we thought that there needed to be a comprehensive look because sometimes we advocate for one thing, not really um, uh, acknowledging the changes that it will make in other, you know, in other areas of rehabilitation. So, uh, this paper was uh, was written to to point out some of the problems and uh, steer toward uh, uh, ideas that may be useful in uh, remedying those problems. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, without being prescriptive or, or too policy wonky about uh, specifics. Uh, we figure if we educate ed, uh, legislators and, and other people in the field um, about what we see as the concerns, uh, we hopefully people who are uh, much more uh, 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 able to write the actual laws can do that and uh, with, with that, this as a background. So um, I, I asked my panelists to, to uh, read through the, that if they could. And I was wondering, um, given what we have uh, identified as concerns, uh, what can your organization and our organization work together on to, to improve the rehabilitation system? I'll start. Good, Lee. Thanks. Um, yeah, we, we read the paper, um, I think, shortly after it came out um, and shared it with um, I, I showed it with my board and members and and uh, coalition members too, and we're very impressed. So I'd like to commend you, Doug, and the other members of the task force for putting together this white paper. Um, we we agree with everything that's in there, and um, in one way or another, we're working on all of those things. I, I mentioned our major um, policy and legislative priority, but. We have Vision Serve Alliance has a policy committee um, made up of members, and mm. um, like Kelly and his members, what we what we work on as priorities um, are identified by our members. Aging was, in fact, the, the top concern of our members, but there are others, and so um, I, there's nothing nothing in the paper that we would disagree with, and hopefully, we'll be able to. Uh, whittle away at all those. There's just one thing that I'll say that I think um, is a little bit missing in the and, and in most discussions that I find um, 
And that is to acknowledge the growing population of younger people with multiple disabilities. And, um, and I think that is, it, that's going to be a real challenge, particularly for employment and, um, and living, supported living. Um, we, we are so focused on getting people who are blind and visually impaired into competitive and independent living situations that I, I feel like we forget that there are some that are not capable of that. And um, we, we don't want to lose sight of them. I'm, I'm particularly concerned about it because my son is multiple disabled. So I live with this, um, this personally. And, you know, let's not forget that population, which I think is a big reason WIA was created in the first place. But the emphasis is on competitive employment and some people are not going to get there. So that's the only thing that I think could be strengthened. Otherwise, I think it's a, a really great piece of work and we look forward to, you know, holding hands with ACB and other partners to try to get some of this done. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I read through the um, policy items and I think, you know, from a standpoint of vocational rehabilitation, the, the only item that I would have to take objection to is the ability one being judged solely on the basis of wages and benefits and up, upward mobility. Um, and the reason I would do that is because, um, you know, WIOA as well as WIA um, put a major emphasis on the integration of individuals who were blind and visually impaired into the mainstream employment. And, you know, I, I look at that and, you know, Ability One has a unique mission. VR has a different mission and it's very unique. It doesn't mean that VR doesn't refer individuals to uh, Ability One because we do based on their uh, informed choice. And, and it doesn't mean that there aren't some Ability One positions um, that aren't integrated. It's just for those that are not, VR doesn't serve that uh, purpose. And under WIOA, it was not intended to serve that purpose. You know, there's an interesting policy paper you ought to read from the National Council on Disability that was le- released in October of 2020. And some of the concerns were despite the increased program revenue earned throughout um, through sales to the federal government, employment for people who are blind or have significant disabilities has steadily declined since 2011. So I'm, I'm going to give you a little anecdotal conversation here from Michigan. Um, so when, when we're working with one of our Ability One providers right now, um, in terms of a position we believe meets competitive integrated employment. The problem we have is that um, the scripting and the ability to script the software for this particular position is, is not, has not been vetted. We're, you know, is not, may not even be doable. Um, and so that rules us out from even working in that area. Um, We're kind of looking at how we can fix that. 
But this is a, a big issue, and it seems like sometimes some of the jobs that are there are meant for individuals that are higher skilled, whereas if you really read what the Ability One program is for, as Lee mentioned, is for individuals who have skills that would not lead to competitive integrated employment. That said, again, I will emphasize that if an individual wants to seek employment with Ability One, VR has an obligation to refer that individual if that's their informed choice. Okay, thank you. And um, Kelly. So I can't say that I thoroughly digested the paper. I mean, I, I did skim it and read it. Um, I do have to tell you, I take some uh, exception to some of the premises that are in it. Um, like that competitive integrated employment is counterproductive. Uh, and that the job service should serve people that are not served well by um, VR through the Department of Education. The, the job service, uh, in Nichols' opinion, the job service is there to serve everybody. It doesn't serve everybody except people with disabilities. So there's this other system. We, we think that you have an absolute right to go to job service and get the services that they provide, whether you're disabled or not, including blindness. So, so Kelly, Kelly, are you talking about the the job centers, the one-stop centers at the workforce? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I agree with you. Go ahead. So we we did a lot of uh, the advocacy around stuff in the in the uh, WIOA, and that was definitely one of the things that we took positions on that said. You have a right to access those services just because you have a disability doesn't mean you should be sent to this other system. Um, so that other system can help provide other services, but it's not like you have to go to this other system. So, and then uh, we we completely believe that people should be employed in competitive integrated employment. And uh, like Bill, I would encourage you to read the paper from NCD if you haven't read that already. Um, and I, I can tell you, I've spent a lot of time working on the Ability One system, and I have a lot of problems with Ability One. Um, I wrote them a couple of letters, and they never even responded, pointing out some of the problems we had with them, and they didn't even take the time to respond to say they got my letter. And they've been like that. They, they're, um, I'll just be completely frank. I think that actually a lot of the times they, they felt like they didn't have to respond. It wasn't like they were too busy or they, they didn't, uh, they just felt like they didn't need to respond to anybody. They've, they've had that sort of a, um, an attitude toward this kind of stuff. And they get billions of dollars talking about getting billions of dollars. Lee ability one does, they get billions and it should be. Doing. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, no, the commission does not. And I think you're talking about the I'm talking about the ability one program itself. So yeah, the commission. Mm-hmm. So I'm not uh, talking about the commission. I'm talking about the ability one program. As a collective, they earn a lot of money, but that goes to pay people, and you know, it's not it's not a a, a net situation. So, and the the commission itself does not make a lot of money. It has a small allocation. 
So I just wanted to clarify, Bill, you said something that I, I just, did you think that I said that I thought ability one positions were made or meant for people with lesser skills? Cause no, no, I'm not saying that. Yeah, no, you didn't say that, but you said some about WIOA and the purpose. And okay. I just wanted to clarify that WIOA really emphasized what was in the law um, in sub, what I would call sub-regulatory guidance about integrated employment. Mm-hmm. And it codified that through statute. And then um, since then, RSA has put out some um, inf- information about that, that they actually was very helpful, but they had to withdraw based on the fact that a new administration came into play and it hit that area of if you issue regs within a certain time period or sub-regulatory guidance, uh, then, you know, it's just a protocol, a new administration pulls it back and then the new political appointees um, have a chance to look at that. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't um, contradicting you on that. I, I didn't mean to. Um, the one one thing I will say, you know, I talked about the mask advocacy. That actually came because an Ability One program um, fired an individual, and it was in the newspaper because they couldn't wear a mask. They fired the individual, and that that made me very upset because they referred to the, um, the CRP as vocational rehabilitation in the article. And I was like, well, wait, time out. There's different levels of vocational rehabilitation. And I wanted to make sure that, that people knew that the state agency was advocating for people to be able to not wear a mask and work and continue to do duties if they had an underlying medical condition. And many individuals do have underlying medical conditions that that do prevent them. And a lot of our EOs that came from our governor initially did not recognize that fully. So we worked with both the state and the federal government to make sure that that was recognized. Right. Um, I, I wanted... And so I, I, yeah, I didn't want this to become a, a, a an ability one um, uh, discussion specifically. My, uh, I, I, but my overriding question for me, uh, and I think it's reflected in the paper, and, and uh, rehabilitation act was passed to provide rehabilitation to uh, people who are blind or, vis- or lost vision, um, and over time. Um, I think with Fred Schroeder specifically, um, it became more VR and everybody calls it VR now, but, uh, that was not, you know, that was not what it was originally was the original focus. It was on everybody. And my, my concern is that we're leaving thousands and thousands of people behind who don't know whether they want to work or not because they just turned blind and they, and they have no idea of what their capabilities are. I think it's a valid concern, Doug, and um, I think, you know, really the question is, how do you fund that? Because, um, you know, you have to have, to Lee's point, more money. And and if you look at um, really the the work with the SILs 
um, in the silk. Um, a lot of the sills don't, um, and Kelly, I don't mean to, to, you know, pound on you here a little bit, but do not provide sufficient services to the blind population. But it's it. there's a lack of money, and it takes a specialized person, going back to Lee's comment, to be able to work with a blind individual. So you have to have specialized training. So if she got her billion dollars, or if Kelly got a billion dollars for the SILs, where would those individuals come from? And there's, you know, there's been a lack of personnel uh, training in um, colleges and some of the the programs have been shut down for lack of grants. But you look at the whole VR system, the whole VR system, the VR grant, including the supported employment grant, is about $3.4 billion. That's for 57 uh, agencies, all 50 states and seven U.S. territories. Now you look at the federal budget and you just look at the COVID relief that's <laughs> right. right now. Right. That's $1.9 trillion. Right. $3 billion right. is like reaching in your couch and finding coins right. in relation to trillion. So, you won't get any argument for any uh, from any of us, and we do need to close down. You'll get a little pushback from me because – the entire IL program is funded at 120 million. Yeah, not billions. It's not even close to yeah. billions. It's 100 million. So, yeah. it's, I mean, uh, that's where we're not talking about big money. But that's to that's to fund 715 centers for independent living across the country, and 56 statewide independent living councils. So yeah, well, maybe maybe we can all work together to increase funding for all of these wonderful programs. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I, we are a couple minutes beyond our uh, deadline here. So I, I, I want to just close out by really thanking you guys for coming on and starting this conversation. Um, hopefully we'll do some more discussing and um, either publicly and, 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 uh, you know, offline to uh, see what we can work together on to to increase funding. Uh, I don't think anybody would disagree that we need it. So um, the question is, how do we how do we educate the legislators so that they will they will help they will uh, understand our our need? When I think uh, there, this is Kelly. If I can just real quick, I do think I agree with Bill. Like, there's some systemic stuff that really needs to be addressed, oh, yeah. and I think, and I think COVID has really just yes. sort of like uh, really heightened that, that there's some systemic stuff that really needs to be addressed. Yes. Good. Thank you. Thank you very, very, very much. And uh, Kelly, I understand you're retiring. So uh, I, uh, I want to wish you well. Retirement's great. Uh, learn to say no because everybody and their brother, when they find out you're retired, they want you to do something for them. And <laughs> so, uh, Thank you, Doug. And, and, and thank you, Lee, uh, for your uh, continued um, partnership uh, on, on lots of issues. And, uh, Bill, it was nice to meet you, and, and uh, I hope we can uh, work together a, a lot more in the future. Yep. Um, nice meeting you. Appreciate being on the panel. And I'd like to thank Lee and Kelly, too, and, and just say for all of us in the blindness area, 
you know, there are ways to work together and partner, and we've got to do more. Nice to meet you, Kelly. Thank you guys for reaching out and asking me to be on the panel. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to see you again, Bill. Bye-bye. Thanks, Doug. Thank you.